Uh, it was at lunch. There was no one. There was Chris, myself, and that. And and that says, "Hey, Chris, um, can Vince drive you today?" I remember Chris, like like it was yesterday. He looked at that and he said one thing. He said, "Is he solid?" And yeah, I was hiding behind, and that's like, "Yeah, he's solid." And Chris like, "Then okay, no problem." And then I remember sweating and being in this situation. Why did I put myself in this situation? I don't want to drive no more, you know. But now that I look back on it, that is the that is the most open man slalom skier question in the world, you know. Not oh, how long does he, he's been driving this and that? Is he solid? Yes or no? And I drove, and it actually I was was so. Welcome back to the Waterski Podcast, everyone. This is Matteo with episode 33 of the podcast. This is, I called it a bonus episode on Wednesday because I was late, unfortunately, in uploading Jennifer's episode, but really doesn't take anything away from the quality of this. And actually, I believe this is one great episode with my buddy Vincent Stalabauer. For those of you who know Vino, you probably agree with me that it's time for his voice to be heard at a bigger scale, on a bigger level. This guy is a bit of a Leonardo da Vinci of water skiing, uh, photographer, webcaster, great skier, and driver, great driver. So the guy does a bit of it all and makes the sport better. So we can think about the promotion of the sport on different levels, but certainly the sport needs to be good for the sport to be promoted. And not only he's contributing on that at a huge scale, he's also helping to promote it by giving it um, a platform, whether it is live or through other content that he creates. Vino is a special character. He's a great friend of mine. He grew up in a very strong tradition uh, of water skiing. As he says in the interview, he's a third-generation skier. Um, and I basically decided to do this part with him alone. And then the next part, which will be on Tuesday, will be with Tony Lightfoot and John Walden, who together with Vino have been webcasting some of the best events in the world. And we'll talk strictly webcasting. So stick around for Tuesday. But in the meantime, enjoy this great episode with Vino. A couple of quick announcements. I, If you haven't heard or listened to the Golden Mike podcast with Dano DeMano, uh, who some of you might recognize as being one of the two voices at the Masters, I gave an interview to, for his podcast a few weeks ago and it came out like two or three days ago. So if you haven't checked out the Golden Mike podcast, go and find it on Apple and I think it's also on SoundCloud. Um, or go to his website and listen to the episode. I had a chance to talk about, you know, among the many things, also this podcast. So go and check it out and uh, enjoy the episode with Vincent. See you on Tuesday. Huh? Go ahead. No okay. problem. I'm ready. <laughs> okay, let's do it, buddy. 
Um, all right. So Vincent Stahlbauer, welcome to the Waterski Podcast. Thank you, Matteo. Thanks for having me. I'm stoked to have you, man. Like one of the things that I want to do with this podcast is talk to friends also. And I just so happen to have very interesting friends and you rank very high among the most interesting friends. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much. And I we'll, take it as a compliment. As you, as you should, as you should. It's nice to be high on the rankings. Um, and for several reasons, I think you are maybe not as exposed, but yet one of the biggest ambassadors of the sport of water skiing. And I hope we'll be able to tease it out through this interview. But uh, just to get ourselves warmed up, uh, why don't you share how you got into skiing? Compared to other people, my story might be a bit more boring and traditional, but I got into skiing, I mean, 100% through my parents. Um, as many knows, my parents were, were skiers and actually the family got into water ski through my grandpa. So we happen to be the third generation. Um, so you and your brother yeah. are the third generation. Yeah. The story is actually pretty cool. My grandpa was going to um, to Lugano in a holiday. Like with Lugano with my grandma, his, his wife, and the sister's wife. And the hotel they were staying in was in front of, uh, of Lago di Lugano. And there was a few guys skiing and and my grandma's sister was like ah we should go and and try to ski my grandpa was actually kind of giving shit to the sport he's like ah this is stupid this is for girls that want to glide on the water <laughs> look at those ballerina girls on the water blah 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 and uh, he he never really paid attention and after day three my grandma's sister actually went and got a lesson and apparently got up on the water and, and skied pretty well for first set. And, and she loved it. And then my grandma went and skied and she loved it also. And grandpa was resistant, didn't <laughs> want to do anything. And after two, three days that they were all skiing is like, well, I got, I got to give it a try. And he did the set and he loved it. And they extended holidays. <laughs> So you could ski every day and then there you go. Three generations later, we're still skiing. Yeah, and you're still skiing, well, not only at a high level, but at a high intensity. And that's also one of the things that I love about you and your family. You guys are as intense of water ski passion as I probably have ever seen, right? Um, but let's go to you, okay? So that's how the Stadelbauer generation of water skiers started. You're kind of like the latest one. How, yeah. What do you remember? Obviously, you got into sport because of family, but how do you remember your first few sets, your early days on the skis? Well, the, the first memory I got of being on the lake and all that was when we used to go ski in Domartin in France, where you skied the, the program last year. Uh, that's where we, we, Benny and I, learned to ski. That's where uh, mom and dad were practicing on the... Uh, almost daily basis we're going there every wednesday because you know you got school off on wednesday in europe and then every weekend and basically yeah i was born and the few memories i had was we were going there and they were skiing and i was just hanging out in the boat and then benny started to ski 
I mean, basically, the memories I have over there, Benny was already skiing. Benny, Benny was always skiing. Yeah. Benny was always the one. Seven sets a day, eight sets a day, 11 sets a day. It was like... <laughs> it was a... And so I never... I never really pushed for skiing, but I'll never really say that I was against skiing neither, you know? If yeah. it was sunny and it was good, and then that was like, do you want to ski? Uh... I'll say yes, but I, I've never been. I've never been so driven. I was always like, I want to ski. I want to ski. I want to ski. I want to ski. So we were going there all the time. We we're spending every weekend there. Uh, I just happened to be in the boat and play on shore. And then one day uh, they put me on the skis, I guess, and and I uh, started skiing. And then we were coming also in holidays at Swiss um, for Easter and for October. Swiss ski school. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Swiss ski school. Sorry, we were coming in Florida. And that's where I actually enjoyed it more because it was warmer. And you, when you really see everyone skiing and you see that that's also the stuff that the other kids are doing and all that, I'm like, oh, that's actually pretty cool. I want to be part of it. While when we were in Europe, just going there for the weekend, uh, they don't want to ski so much, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a different environment, right? Both in terms of like climate, but also in terms of like a Swiss, there's always someone around, someone that wants to ski. So it certainly creates a different environment than those gloomy days in October, cold water, trying exactly. to get a set. Exactly. And then as soon as I started actually somewhat get out of the water, obviously I wasn't the most talented one. But as soon as I managed to get out of the water and actually improved, then as soon as you improve, it's hard to not like it. You know what I mean? The first, until I maybe really started skiing when I was about seven and I started enjoying it maybe when I was 10, 11, I started running the course, do events. Then it's like, it was more of a, I liked it more by the fact that I was improving than really the sport itself. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, for sure. I mean, improving is addictive, right? Like we get better, and especially in a sport like slalom where there's always an extra buoy to grab, you know, an extra buoy to turn, it's hard not to be hooked to that, right? Exactly. And I'm sure you see it at ski school. Those people that manage to run the course for the first time is like a life sentence to water ski. I, I always say the biggest accomplishment, I mean, that I see with, with the people we have coming at the ski school, the biggest accomplishment is, is running the course at the end, I think. Oh, yeah, it's, no, of it's, course. It's running it's, the course, so then after you jump to running 10 to 5, so in the middle, it's kind of all the same. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So blurring the middle, right? Um, all right, so... so yeah. That's yeah. how I got in. I mean, I got in. My parents were there. They were, we were at the lakes all the time, so obviously at some point I ended up on the water. Yeah, no, of course. And I mean, as I said, maybe for you, how you got in it, it's, I mean, it's a given, but I like how you explained how you got into it, right? And it, it came to, you know, like running some buoys, being away, for skiing in warmer climates, and also like being part of events, which I know it's one of your favorite parts about water skiing. Um, but, um, okay, so that was around 10, 11. And then what, at what age do you guys... What age were you when you guys moved to the United States? I was 16. So we moved in in uh, August 2012. And already at that time, I was, I mean, I, I did my first event at 11. And at that time, I believe, yeah, we were already practicing on a daily basis at Eurolac. 
so we already had move ski school because you're locked open in 2005 or something like that and um and it was much closer for us was instead of an hour and a half drive was like 20 minute drive and yeah. that helped a little bit into that so we ended up skiing there and also that made it more convenient to ski so i skied more and then started to do events so then when we moved to the u.s i mean i was i was already hooked into the sport and then the u.s only helped for me to ski even more you know what i mean and yeah, yeah. we moved in 2012 i was 16 actually now I might have skipped a couple of, of steps when, you know, as you know, in the Water Ski Podcast, we have no structure. We might go back and forth. <laughs> but uh, I guess my my question is, you strike me as someone who's passionate about the sport on v- multiple levels. Um, so it sounds that by the time you moved to the U.S., your passion about your own skiing was already there, right? But what about the passion for, let's say... Um, the promotion of events. Well, the 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 first the first the first let's say glance I had about doing something else than skiing into skiing was when I started taking picture. For me, skiing was only skiing, and that was it. Yeah. Well, since I was already a kid, I always said, but I was too young. I always say I want to drive the boat. I want to drive the boat. I want to drive the boat. But I feel there's plenty of kids that say I want to drive the boat. But me, actually, that is the, 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 let's say, the passion that started the earliest and that actually stuck to me because photography only thought about it later and then the webcasting way later. But driving, since I was three years old, I said I want to drive the boat. And, and almost every day now when I drive the boat, I'm like, I finally got to drive this boat, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, it started actually the first, the first thing I did into skiing that wasn't actually being on the water was pictures. And this I remember like it was yesterday. I was 13 um, and um, Alan was always taking pictures. And uh, Alan, your, your uncle. Yeah, yeah your my uncle. uncle was always taking pictures. And we happened to be on my grandma's birthday party somewhere in France, like nothing to do with water skiing, nothing. And my yeah. uncle was like, ah, tonight I want to enjoy the party. Here's the camera. Here's the button. Here's automatic setting. Just grab a few picture. And that's it. And I got pictures of the party. And I'm like, oh, this is cool, you know. And um, and I went home and I bought a camera. And it was like a $250 camera. Alan helped me out a little bit to, to, to get the money together. I bought it and we drove straight I bought it with Alan. We drove straight from the store that was in Geneva to the lake. And I took picture 24-7. I just took pictures, picture in the boat, picture this, picture that. And uh, and that's where that's that's where basically I'm like, oh, there's actually something more than just skiing at the lake. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's why I really started liking being at the lake, hanging out and then coming out with a few shots and uh, and from there i'm like okay you can do actually more in the sport than just skiing you know you can be a bit busier than just your 15 minutes a day you know yeah exactly which is a struggle that a lot of skiers have right like after i ski what do i do now exactly luckily we do an outdoor sport at the lake so there's a lot of things to do but you also have to find them um 
I, I don't know. I might recycle some of the questions that I asked Thomas Gustafsson in his interview. Um, but uh, what what is the first shot you remember taking where you looked at it and you thought, okay, this is a good shot? So uh, if I if I pull it back now, it I, I don't think I still even have it. But I remember the shot. It, it was a terrible shot if I compare it to the shots I had now. But at that time, it was a very cool shot. It's the first time I was inside the water, actually, inside the buoy in the water. Um, I was pretty young again. I was like, it was maybe the first year I took pictures. I was about 13, 14, and I kept seeing pictures from inside the buoy. I'm like, how can I go? How can I go? I want to go inside the buoy. And that's like, you're too young. It's too dangerous. It goes too fast. I mean, which was nuts. I mean, now I... I'm 23 years old, I go inside the buoy, I'm scared, I'm <laughs> 13, I was way too young to go inside the buoy. That is like when you're tall enough to reach the bottom of the lake and that you don't need the life jacket, we'll shoot inside the buoy. I'm like, it's never gonna work. <laughs> the lake was like two meters deep, I'm like, I'm never gonna touch the thing, but it was a good trick on his end, you know? Yeah, yeah, it was smart. And then we happened to go, so we were skiing at Yulak at that time, and then we happened to go for one weekend back to the Martin, which the Martin, as you know, it's super shallow. It's yeah. like less than a meter at the buoy. And I'm like, I touched the bottom of the lake, I take picture inside the buoy now. <laughs> and he's like, well, you got a point. So he's like, you stand there and you don't move. And he skied. Benny didn't ski. I don't think Benny was there that weekend. And he skied and I grabbed a couple shots and they're barely framed and they're all blurry because inside the buoy I was obviously way too close to the buoy and this wrong lens and all that. And um, But I, I grabbed a few shots where I had a glance of the, the potential. I'm like, wow, this is really cool. I'm somewhat getting the same angle that the water ski mag pictures are getting. Yeah, exactly. I can do this. Basically, that's the first time I'm like, now I'm a photographer, I actually set up a shot and, and, and grabbed it. It didn't look as good as I wanted, obviously, but, but I got some of it. So that's, yeah, shot of that was inside three ball on the second pass in uh, Domarta. That's the first time I'm like. Dude, okay. isn't it funny how we remember some of the specifics? A right. big time. I remember the board short I wear. It was a blue board short. I had no life jacket. I almost remember the settings, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got stuff like that. That's just, that's just, yeah, printed in your in your memories, I guess. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's kind of what I want to extrapolate for this first part of the interview, like the, those memories. Um, well, I do remember a shot of yours, and I think a lot of people remember that shot of yours which I don't know if it's your first shot published on the magazine, but it was the shot of Will inside of two ball, two ball at 43 at uh, Elysee at, at Cup, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that was a cool shot. That was a very, very cool Give shot. the context, because Will that year was shredding like mad, right? Like he was killing it at a lot of events. And I, w I was at that event and I knew that, I think maybe CP was even there. And there were, there were ch chances of seeing some boys at 975, which... This is pre-Nate Smith era. Like no, watching is, someone running 41 was insane. This is a time where 41 wasn't even, was a myth. 41 exactly. was something you heard that was happening all across the world that you couldn't even think about. So it was actually um, the first round. So I, if I'm not mistaken, it was actually Will's first set on that lake. 
and that's the best score he scored on that league. I believe that was it. It was either the first set or the second set. So it was, it was, early, was early on. It was the first time he was at Dylan. And so, yeah, I mean, 10 to 5. I'm, I've never seen someone run 10 to 5 before, before that, uh, that day uh, was, as you see, pre-Nate Smith area. So it was like, <laughs> it's still hard now, but it was you wouldn't see that every day, you know? Right. And, and real, well, ran 10 to, so he ran 10 to that way. So he must have started. Yeah, he 32, started at yeah. 32. He started at 32. He ran uh, 10 to 5. So on the first pass, so he came back at 9 on the way back. And I remember I was in the middle of the lake. I can't even remember shooting his 10 to. I think I watched the 10 to, to be honest. Fair enough. I think I watched it and then he ran it. And then I remember thinking, well, now I got to get nine because maybe I was kind of the only photographer now. I'm like, maybe there's going to be somewhat of a, I mean, tie of a European record or beaten the European record. I want to get a proof of that, you know? Yeah. And um, so I ran and there is the ramp that blocks. You, you don't see the crossing from one to two because of the ramp. So I, I moved that I was mostly getting one because I'm like, well, from what I heard, apparently people are barely getting to nine. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> exactly. know much about nine. I knew it was hard. <laughs> I still don't know much about nine. I still know the same that it's hard. So I'm like, I'm mostly going to focus on one, but I'm still going to somewhat get a glance at two. So in case he gets to two, I can get shot. And the shot actually around of one ball is pretty normal he's fully stretched out he gets around one he had a pretty good one pulled like a maniac to two then threw the ski and and no one knew was it two was it one was it one and a quarter was it this was it that and me i, I quickly grabbed pictures and you know when you sit on your small screen you don't you you don't really pay attention to details especially i was young i wasn't zooming in to check if everything was sharp i'm like oh i got pictures i guess he got two or he got inside i don't know then i remember i ran back to the dock grabbed a couple of pictures of will getting back at the dock and and then the decision for from the official takes forever to come through and then they're like it's one and i remember that it was a bit of a fuss at the event people were, some people was like it's two and it was a pretty big deal whether it's a tied european record or, or or broken european record so there was a bit of controversy at the lake and the officials they they they, they actually they, they were actually they didn't let they didn't let really people get into their head they're like no it's one we move on next year yeah i go home I mean, the next day when I upload my picture, I see the shot and it was a shot actually where you, it, it, it was tight, but you see that the wheel ski is basically on the buoy, but on the inside of two. So the shot was actually really showing, was taken at the perfect time that it was a one. And I remember actually uh, sending it to the chief judge and say, uh, good job on your call. Uh, this is the proof that, that you were right, actually, basically. Because and how old were you? So that was about three years before I moved. I must have been 14. 14, yeah. So you're telling me that at 14 years old, you like a couple of things I'm noticing. One, you had the cold blood of thinking in those 50 seconds between 10 to 5 and 975 to find yourself in a position to shot a European record. 
I'm one. Like, yeah. <laughs> 14. Two, you had the audacity to send it to the chief judge and tell him or her, hey, good job. You guys got it right. Which on, on my side, the chief judge was someone we knew really well. Yeah, it was Fred Dupont from Switzerland. So I was, I mean, he, I knew I him. He wasn't some, some guy from, from the US that I had to find his email. I'm like, that. I got the shot. I got to send it to him. And, and we send it. <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah, but still, man, like, that's not what a typical 14 year old skier does or thinks. Right? Yeah, I mean, the, the shot proved it. So might as well might as well share it with the people that might have not slept so good at that time you know i mean you're a chief judge and you got to pull a boy from will you know i'm not no, sure no, of course of course so but that's so what i'm saying I, i'm saying it as a compliment like the fact that you you definitely always thought a little bit differently from your regular skier right your regular teenage skier and certainly nowadays from your regular skier um let's switch for a second to driving because you said that was your first passion that you figured out that there's something else to do at the lake beyond skiing um when did dad entrust you to start driving a little bit all right if it, it were if it was actually only for that i would still be doing up and downs on the lake to be <laughs> sure i wasn't gonna kill no one with the boat that had a which which actually helped but that had a very 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 conservative approach with driving, which I totally understand because at the end you get what 400 horsepower on a swimming pool, basically. So, so I understand that, that he was pretty conservative. So actually the first time I, so I always asked to drive the boat, yeah. but there was no way I was just too young and, and you know how in Europe, they're not going to give you their brand new boat to, to do up and downs when you're 12 years old, you know, but the first time I, I actually got to sit behind and, and, and get to drive was at my grandpa's ski school. So my grandpa had a ski school in Belgium for, I don't know, 30 years. And when we were kids... The same, sorry, the same grandpa that thought that water skiing was for only for girls to do nice maneuvers. E exactly, exactly. Okay, <laughs> exactly. Okay, just to make sure. He, he ran a ski school for a long time, for about 30 years, um, an hour away from Brussels in Belgium. And Benny and I were always going for about a week to 10 days, once a year to go practice with him. It was either beginning of the season or end of the season. It depends a little bit. And then when we were there, was a bigger lake. He had a Mastercraft. I remember an orange Mastercraft. And, uh, and it was the family boat, if we may say. So it was actually a bit easier to get behind the wheel because, first of all, the lake was a bit wider and then was Grandpa's boat. So... And yeah. grandpa, grandpa that didn't really care much. If if I wanted to go drive the boat, it's like, here's the key, here's the boat, go figure it out, you know? <laughs> so basically, that's that's what happened. I asked to, to, to drive the boat, and he's like, here's the boat, here's the key, go figure it out. And, and luckily, Benny came with it. He's like, no, no, he's not going to be able to figure out one. He's going to put the boat on the shore, you know? With Benny at that time, I must have been, yes, he was all the same time, about 13, 14. Benny was four years older, so he was, yeah, 16, 18 about. And he came with and Benny was like, well, I'll show you. So you push the boat and here's the throttle, here's the deal. And that was basically day two of the holiday. And then by day 10, I could do somewhat up and downs and turn around and stay at trick speed. And 
I wasn't I wasn't crazy in the boat. I understood that it was dangerous and that it was expensive and that I needed to be careful. So the first time I drove a boat was at Grandpa. And then I went back home and same deal. There's no way to even practice to drive a boat or anything like that. And then we came to Swiss in the fall. And there we were on holiday. We were for a longer time. During lunch break, the boats are sitting. So that is like, well, now I'll really teach you how boat works. And it's like, okay, the props turn this way. So you do this with the steering wheel and that. And you do up and downs and you go fill up the boat. So try to do as much as maneuvers as possible, dock the boat and all that. And then the first time I actually drove a skier uh, was by accident. Was back in Belgium the year after. Uh, same during those those holidays. I always only went myself this time. And Jean-Christophe Fortin showed up the trick. Before I remember before the Europeans, which at that time he must have going to open Europeans. Yeah. And was like two days before opening your pins and he comes to trick. And there's only me and grandpa at the lake and he wants to do the toes. So now we need a pinner. The mistake he made, he put <laughs> grandpa as a pinner and me as a driver. He should have switched. Even though I was young, he should have switched. Grandpa <laughs> doesn't see too well. That's also a problem. And, and he's not a huge fan of tricking, let alone toes. <laughs> and... And we were like yesterday, so we go, it's the first skier I'm going to, I'm going to pull in my life. This is it. This is the moment. I'm like 15 years old. We push the boat. We go. It's the first pass. I remember Jean-Christophe is like, you point at the tree here at the end of the lake and we're going like 28K or something like that. So we're going slow. He starts in toes. I get him out the water. He's warming up on his trick in toes. So this is like we're 30 seconds into the set. He yeah. falls. Grandpa doesn't pin. And me, the, the instruction I had was like, you follow the three and you keep the ball straight. So I'm not even looking at the mirror. I'm just squeezing the steering wheel as hard as I can. And I'm just like, I go straight to the three. I go straight to the three. I go straight to the three. And then I felt something weird a bit behind the boat. But remember, it's the first ski I drive. I don't really know how it's supposed to feel. Right. And I, <laughs> I look in the mirror and there's literally shocking stuff laying on the water, getting dragged by me. And Grandpa is holding on to the rope release as hard as he can. <laughs> I'm like, I think something is wrong. So I actually shut it off. I, I pull and I'm like, why did he fall? He's like, I don't know. Normally, he doesn't fall on the strike, so I don't let go. <laughs> oh, what does that mean? So I go pick him up, which takes me 45 minutes because obviously I'm not really experienced driver. He broke his ankle. His foot was bleeding. He's hurt as it gets. And then he gets destroyed by my grandpa. How can you fall on some warm-up tricks? You're going to the Europeans in three days. So you also get shit from your granddad. <laughs> he gets shit from my grandpa. Then Jockey Stuff ended up apolo apologizing to grandpa for falling on tricks like that. <laughs> and then he went back. He, had, he didn't get hurt, luckily. I mean, he was bleeding and all that, but not severe injury. He broke his whole handle. He fixed his handle. And then we went again. <laughs> and then that set was normal. <laughs> 
So that was the first set you drove. That's the first set I drove. Was a complete. Uh, was not a good memory. <laughs> was a complete Let, disaster. Yeah, I know for sure. <laughs> Let's fast forward to today. What is the last set you drove? Did you drive this morning? No, I drove uh, Benny yesterday. Benny, who's your brother? Yeah. Who is trying to run forty-one off? Yeah. 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 And there's a lot of people who you drive on a regular basis that are either trying to run 41 off or they are running 41 off. What was like, what was the thing? Cause obviously that's the other thing. Like we all love your driving. That's one of the super cool things. Like a lot of people will say that you are one of the best drivers around. What do you think you have that you do that makes you a good driver? Well, it's a hard question. What, what, what I can say is that if we go, if we go back a little bit, um, I think it's the way I learn stuff maybe into the water ski and, 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 and the, how can I say this? And, the, the respect we were taught about the sport, like that always, always talked about, about water ski and grandpa about water ski in very detailed manners and in very respectful manners. So when they talked about driving, it wasn't just, ah, yeah, here is the boat. We always knew there was more about everything. Since day one, we knew that skis could be stiff and soft and that ropes could be bungee or stiff and that drivers could be good or bad. You know what I mean? Right, right. So it was always a bit already before I even get to really drive, I knew, okay, the boat shouldn't do that and this should be there and the rope should do that and that bush should be at that level. So we've always been very informed about what was good, what was bad, what was respectful and what was disrespectful to do at docks and at lakes and in boats. Like no talking in the boat and you don't go on the dock when the skier is getting ready and stuff like that. So then when we when I got to, to, to drive and that, then after, after that first set, we moved to the U S and he really taught me to drive a boat because it's like, well, now we live at the ski school. You're going to drive a boat was always in, wasn't as a cowboy way. Here is the boat, go drive. And as long as the boat is straight, it's good. It was always the way he taught me was you're going to drive and you're going to be a good driver. Basically it was, it wasn't really forced, but like, if you're going to learn to drive, it's going to be to drive properly which I yep. wanted. I mean, so I always had a lot of respect for driver, always loved both and, and, and always every time put really more effort into trying to drive good than, than skiing good. You know what I mean? It was always, I don't know, something also when you drive, you're, you're affecting the skier. So you got to give it your 100%. You know, the, 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 the last thing you want is, is to let the skier down. The guy puts all his life into it. You're not going to say, Oh, sorry. I was, uh, I didn't go to bed early yesterday. I didn't drive good today and that shouldn't happen. You know what I mean? Right. So right. we, we always, I mean, got taught the, the proper way. I think that already helped. And then, and then the, and then actually the driving really picked up when, uh, when we moved to the U S we, we got to be here, uh, obviously like, like, like anything, the more you drive, the more you do it, the better you do it. So I, I got to drive quite a lot here, which 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 is good and i started driving i actually didn't start driving ski school people at all the ski school the ski school people is the last thing i drove because it's actually at the end 
almost the hardest. It's beginners because yeah. they don't go where you think they're going to go. You know, on two skis, the turn is completely different and this and that. It's, as you know, the lakes at Swiss are a bit small, so you got to be a bit careful. So the, f- the person, the, the, the real first guinea pig was actually mom. So dad was always in the boat and then mom was skiing. And, and he never, that never really taught me actually driving skills. He just taught me safety and what, how it should feel. But he never said, oh, do this with this thing, will or do that. So I, I can't say I, I, had a, I had a safety coach in driving, just making sure I was doing stuff safe. But anyway. Which is probably more important, right? Yeah, I think it's, definitely. you know, like it's more important. And also it's how, you know, you should be taught, particularly with that. And I totally agree, knowing your family very well, the whole idea of like respecting the sport is very clear in the style of ours, you know? So even more so the respect for the sport, meaning being able to do it safely. Exactly. And I always like now that I know, and, and, and sometimes I see like, like people just jump in the boat, go drive. Like, I don't know when, when you get to new lakes, if you can do an up and down, do an up and down, if you can, do your pen down at 40k instead of 60k doing at 40k you know what i mean when Alice yeah. comes back from from like two months of louisiana and she goes that swiss is going to pull me she does up and down i'm not saying uh here's, even though she drove on the lake already just doing up and downs it's not the same boat and it doesn't take anything and and right. it's better for everyone at the end because when you already seen both end of the lake before you go with the skier it's a bit easier and all that you know yeah so anyway, to get back to driving, yeah, uh, uh, we moved here. I started driving mom then Soli was less overwhelmed because I, at the end of the day in a boat is just, I felt it very overwhelming at the beginning. You know, you got the sound and the steering wheel is pulling one way and you got the wind and the skier is actually going fast behind you and the shores are flying by you. And at the beginning, I don't know, for me, it was very overwhelming. There was, there was a lot of stuff going on, you know, and you got the beeps, the this, and so it was, yeah. the, the, was just getting used to, to all that. And obviously, once you get used to all that, you don't even notice that the shorts are flying by, you know. Yeah, of and course. And then started driving dad, which dad is perfect because he feels everything, but he's fairly easy to drive. He doesn't really pull at, uh, at spots that is hard and all that. So, And then I started driving Benny. And <laughs> okay. <laughs> And that's, let's say, where I really learned. Uh, yeah, not very in- humbling experience, no? Yeah, exactly. There, there's where I actually learned that a driver is going to receive shit in his life. You know, I, I always thought that driving was cool. And I drove Benny and I'm like, well, driving can be pretty fucking bad also. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, then I started driving Benny and, and, and he's... Um, good for me he's a picky man with the driving and and obviously uh, i wasn't really driving the best this uh, i'm not uh, i'm not taking anything away from him but um yeah he 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 told me when i was driving bad and he made sure that i knew when i was driving bad and he also told me when i would drive was driving good and he made sure i knew when i was driving good so and that's important right because uh i don't know if you heard the episode i had with mario but uh, he claimed as one of the most important things uh, for a driver to become better is to get feedback from the skier. And generally speaking, it's going to be when he feels bad. But I think it's important to hear also and for skiers to tell the driver when he feels good or she feels good. Because 
that's when you know, okay, whatever I did this past, I did it right. Yeah, you know? yeah. Also, yeah, I mean, Benny was already a good skier at that time. He was trying to run 39, basically 10-7. It was always like 3-4. And, um, and yeah, it's with, with Benny and where I really actually did my driving skill because Benny was uh, studying uh, in Lafayette, was rooming with you. So he was in Louisiana. He was only coming yep. here for holidays. And actually, the, the, the guy that was here on a daily basis that I got to drive, learn how to drive, and that wasn't really as picky, but still needed a fair pool. Was actually Thibaut. Yeah, I was gonna say Thibaut is the guy that was here on a daily basis, and and where learn really from. I wouldn't say zero because then you had to do up and downs, but from from <laughs> literally ten percent to to ninety five percent was with Thibaut, and that's yeah. where he was always. 32, 35, 38, and trying to run 39. I remember Benny and Thibault was where they were always there trying to to run 39. So that's where that's the guy that the, let's say the first open man I got to drive on a daily basis and and with who I, with who I improved. Yeah, yeah, and I like how you said before how kind of like almost uh, ironically the lower level skiers are the hardest to drive properly. So I want to hear from your perspective, is it important to drive all levels of skiers in order to become a better driver? Yes, it is definitely because, I mean, at the end of the day, driving in the course with open men, 36 miles an hour, 58, that's where you learn the most. I mean, that's where you learn what to do with the boat. But actually, the whole outside the course aspect is much, much harder with a beginner. The maneuvers, they lose the ski, you got to go grab the ski, get back, the turns, the, 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 um, the amateur skier, they, learn, they, they teach you how to be aware of things, you know, to really turn the head, make sure the skier is not going to hit the shore and all that kind of stuff. So yes, actually driving amateur skier makes you a better overall driver there's also a lot of drivers that 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 drive very good in the course but then if 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 you're picky and you really if you really look the whole patterns and all that are not so great you know what i mean and i think it's also driving on different lakes with different level skiers that makes you look for other stuff than just stuff in the course if yeah. that makes any sense, you know, how to really yeah, sure. drop a skier without being effort for a skier, how to safely get back to the skier, how to react to a situation that an open man will never put you in. Like a beginner, sometimes they go in front of the boat and open man's never going to do that. But I mean, one time it might happen that you're going to have to react, you know. So yeah. I think it's good to drive a level skier. But to be honest, I wouldn't start with... Not necessarily, I wouldn't start with amateur, but I would start with someone that that you know and that you know what he's going to do and not start with with just a guy that shows up and you don't really know his routine, you know what I mean? Yeah, especially his granddaddy spinning, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Not start hey, like I started. <laughs> so do you remember, because I think one of the, th- the things that always I found very, as you said, like... Y- the whole respect for the sport entailed that you, as you were trying to become a better driver, you would talk to drivers and you would ask questions and 
you know, I remember that. Ah, uh, yeah, I was. Uh, I mean, as you know, I'm I'm pushy. When, yes, when I, I want to get an info, um, uh, I'm going <laughs> to try to eat you alive <laughs> to get the but, info. Uh, What was one of the breakthroughs you had in driving? And I'm talking now about like, you know, pro men, pro women, high level skiers. Is there a moment where you realized that something you were doing was better than another? Like, you know, or honest, was it just like a progression slowly but surely? Was a progression, but I didn't really have compliments about my driving. Obviously, I improved when I was driving Thibaut and Benny and all that. And I was getting a better driver, but it was zero breakthrough. I mean, I was just okay. I was a bit more straight. But now that I look back on it, my boat was still rocking a bit back and forth, which obviously it's the worst thing for both to do. And yeah, they're like, okay, you drive better, but it wasn't really good enough. You know what I mean? I wasn't... At that time, when Asher would show up at the ski school, I wouldn't be able, able to drive him. You know, and that was also that was also a big deal that also helped into my breakthrough. At that time, um, Parrish was skiing. Chris Parrish was skiing quite a lot at Swiss. Yeah, and that's maybe one of my not necessary, not proudest moment, but one of my happiest moment in a boat. Um, Parrish was always coming to ski. I was getting better, but as I say, I wasn't really good enough. And dad will drive, would drive Chris all the time, dad or Patrice. And every time I would see Chris walking down the, the path, I would be like, dad, today, can I drive him? And dad will be like, you're not ready. I'd be like, Jesus, when am I going to be ready? You know, with dad, I was never ready. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And days after days after days after days. And then actually, Dad was like, okay, now you, you're somewhat going to be ready. It wasn't a windy day. It was the, the best nautique we had, I think, at that time. The boat was very good to drive. It wasn't windy. And, and, I mean, Chris at that time was, was, was at his peak, and he's not an easy guy to drive. He's a big guy. Uh, he goes to run uh, 10 to 5, you know what I mean? He, he doesn't want to waste sets, you know? But what do you think, what do you think made, made your dad say, okay, now is the, the time? Was it, like, just great conditions, or you were improving? What was it? I pushed. I wasn't You're ready. Pushed. <laughs> I wasn't ready. He just was tired of me every single day. I want to drive Chris. 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 I think I was actually, I said I wasn't ready. I was ready. I would have not given him his best pull, but I would have given him an okay pull. And, and I remember the moment like yesterday, Chris gets ready and I walk down to the boat, which normally I was not all the time, but usually I would go to the boat to watch him. And I was at lunch, there was no one. There was Chris, myself, and that. And, and that says, hey, Chris, um, can Vince drive you today? I remember Chris, like, like it was yesterday, he looked at that and he said one thing. He said, is he solid? <laughs> and he was hiding behind. And that's like, yeah, he's solid. And Chris like, then okay, no problem. And then I remember sweating and being in this situation. Why did I put myself in this situation? I don't want to drive no more, you know. But now that I look back on it, that is the, that is the most open man slalom skier question in the world, you know. Not, oh, how long does he, he's been driving this and that? Is he solid? Yes or no? And I drove. And it actually, I was, was so... 
I don't know, focus and, and, and all that, that it wasn't actually that bad. I, I expected, you know, way worse. And Chris, I think, skied okay. He must have scored like three or four or something like that, and which at that time was the best score I ever drove by far. And, yep. and that wasn't actually, that was okay. I can somewhat drive good skiers, but at that time, as I said, I didn't really drive good. And, and, and Chris, I got to drive Chris a bit more and more. And then suddenly it clicked, to be honest. Suddenly, I don't know, I, the boat didn't really feel that, that hard. And I, I feel that when you drive good or when you drive bad, when you drive good, but like same as in skiing, everything really slows down. And everything is actually, the ski suddenly feels like he's not pulling anything. The boat feels like you can maneuver it way, way more than you used to. And, and, and it seems that you have an amount of time be between gates and gates, you know, that you can really, okay, I put it here, I put it here, I put it here, I do that. And, and yeah, it's driving over, driving over, driving and, and constantly asking and this and that. And Chris was also something that, someone that was really aware big time of what the boat was doing yeah big big time this i'm like i knew that skier could be sensitive but chris will be like okay before the pre-gate your boat was here i didn't have to swing out of the gate i'm like jesus i never even thought about stuff like that you know what i mean <laughs> right right this was really someone that 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 analyzed everything and and yeah so 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 Basically, yeah, the area of Thibaut, Benny, Chris at Swiss, that's where I got all my, my driving skill together. And then I finally got to drive the manual Asher. And yeah, and I was since, gonna say, since then that, tell me off. that story. To be honest, I can't remember the first time I drove Will. But what I can tell you about Will is that he's still, I don't ask me why, he, he, I, I don't know why. Because by now, I, luckily for me, I got to drive him quite a lot. Uh, but he's still the guy that every time he's behind the boat, I'm somewhat sweating in my seat. He, he I don't know why. It, not with Benny, not with Chris, not with Nate, not with, but with Will. I don't know, just because the the the, the name, the the guy, the 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 the, the medals, the record. Still, I don't know him. <laughs> 13 meters, I'm more scared than, uh, than, than Benny at 10 too, you know? <laughs> and Will never said anything bad. I, he never complained about my driving and, and he's someone that's going to ski through everything no matter what, you know what I mean? So I know people that are way more picky than Will with the driving, but I don't know. Will, as still as of today, he, he gets into my, in my head, which, which is good. You know, he's still the, the guy that I'm like, when is he going to come to ski so I can drive, you know? Yeah, right, 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 right. That's cool. No, and obviously, you know, Will is one of those guys that has been speaking very highly about your driving. So even with that, you're still going to be a little nervous at 32. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, by, by far, if you, if you could measure the... The, the, the tension of my hand when I squeeze the steering wheel, uh, well, 13, I'm squeezing the steering wheel way harder than, than Benny at 10 too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and let me ask you this, because Mario in, in, in my podcast says something that in my opinion is very telling of how he drives. And I think you would agree with me that he's one of the best drivers in the world. I mean, just the record uh, yeah, and how he drives. Yeah, he's, he's by far the most uh, decorated driver, if we may say. And 
He said, I know that I'm doing my job when I'm as anonymous as possible, meaning, you know, nobody's talking about my driving, uh, almost kind of like a thankless job, right? Like if I did everything correctly, nobody even noticed that I was there. Actually, uh, the, um, when I did my test to become, I became actually, actually national driver through the U.S. Federation, and then I became international driver to the Swiss through the Swiss Federation. And actually, when I became national driver through the U.S., Gordon came to give me Gordon West came to give me a, a, an exam and see if I was driving good. And he said one of the most true things, and that's still dead accurate today. He's like, if you get out of so he was talking about tournaments, but it works the same also in practice. He's like, if you get out of the boat and you don't hear anything. You did a perfect job. And it's really true. If you get out and, 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 and everyone's just acting normal and, and there's, no, there's no radios going on, and, and, and then you know you drove out of your mind. You, right. you, you know the feeling if, you, if, if people liked it or not. And it's true. If people don't say anything, and as Mario said, if basically you're anonymous and you're there and everything runs smooth and no one had to even think that there was someone driving that boat, you know, then you did great. Yeah. Because it, yeah, it's that's a bit, cool. I always say it's like a goal in soccer. You can only fail. As a driver, right. you can deep down, literally you can only fail. You drive, but only the few ones that really know about driving will actually see a pass and be like, wow, good job. You kept that straight or good job that he ran the pass or, or something like that. But if you just sit on shore and watch, it's like, ah, oh, there is a driver. Yeah, he must be doing a good job because we don't hear about him, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is, I mean, to me, it's telling of the drivers that really respect the sport, as you say. They respect the, the importance of being straight, not for their own glory, but for the, for, to give the skier the ability to ski at their best. Right. I mean, we were at the end, literally the driver is uh, a tool to the skier. You know, it should just be here for, 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 for the fairness uh, in between skiers and, and basically to, to, to make sure the skier can, can, can go as hard as he can and, 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 and can really show what he's got. You know, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't drag the skier down or, or anything like that, you know? Yeah. No, that's cool. Listen, um, I want to switch a little bit to the studies that you did. And because of our next episode, we won't go too much into details with what came out of those. But I'm more interested about the experience. So you moved to the U.S., you finished high school here, and then what happened? So, yeah, uh, moved in 2012. Um, so I was 16. I did actually uh, two more years of high school in the U.S., with Bando Caruso, that was a yeah. that was a cool experience, eventful, and okay. uh, and then um, went to film school in Orlando, Full Sail University, which, as you know, is a bit of different path from any other water skier. So I was always I always wanted to go to film school. And well, there is a, to be fa in fair. To be fair, there is another water skier that took that path. Exactly, Marco Menestrina. 
the yeah. exactly same school and basically had the same lifestyle as I had, was living at Swiss and was studying at Full Sail. And I actually remember meeting Marco, I mean, pr probably I saw him when I was young, but actually remem remembering talking to him uh, during the summer of 2014, I believe, right before I entered school, basically. I was starting Full Sail in September and I met Marco at your event in San Gervaso. And Marco Ministro right. was like, oh, I heard you're going to go to full sale. I'm like, yeah, I'm starting uh, in September. And I already heard a little bit that full sale was was running a bit different than other colleges. It's, it's running uh, in two years and it's seven days a, a week and 24 hours a day in class and all that. So I already heard that the schedule was a little rough. And I'm like, so any tip for me, Marco Mir? And uh, he's like, well, and I remember I was at your event already running around all tired and all this. And, and Marco is like, well, get some rest, sleep until you start school, because once you start, you won't be able to get sleep. <laughs> I'm like, well, I think then the schedule is going to be rough. Yeah. So um, full sale was always was always something I wanted. I got lucky that that we ended up having a, a, a good film school in Orlando. I didn't have to move. Um, I never really hesitated with any other college. Uh, graduated uh, from high school and then wanted to go to film school. We looked a bit around. We actually discovered about Full Sail when dad visited Benny in Louisiana because dad was looking, okay, if he doesn't go to film school, the second option was to go to Lafayette with Benny. So he was actually talking to a photography teacher in Lafayette. It's like, yeah, my mm -hmm. son might eventually come to study here. He likes pictures and movies. What kind, what kind of class do you offer or something like that? And he's like, ah, but where do you guys reside? And that's like, we reside in Orlando. He's like, well, there is one of the top film school in Orlando called Full Sail. And we never heard about it. So that was like, oh, we'll go check it out. And we went, we visited the school and and that was it. I was hooked. And went to film school and met John that we're going to talk in the in the, in the the next episode, I believe. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. So how was the experience? Because, I mean, I remember you were like being squeezed. But at the same time, I never heard you complain. No, it's a very... So the... the so as I said, Full Sail ran 21 months exactly. That's how the, the degree was. I did film degree over 21 months. It was uh, a schedule where it's seven days a week, 24 hours a day. They allow to have you now. It doesn't mean that every week we were there for seven days. Usually we were there for six days. Um, six days a week, most of the time, and, and sometimes seven days a week. And classes... They they, 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 they they put classes throughout the whole day just to, to get you used to the, to the film schedule. I mean, in film, there is no schedule, and that's what they're trying to show at full sale. So they put you classes in the middle of the night and then in the middle of the day and all that. Ah, I see. Okay, run, that, that would, explains a lot, actually. They would run like a 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. class, then they would break for three hours and then you would start again at like 7 p.m. till midnight. <laughs> and then you start from two to five. Like schedule did not make sense at all. <laughs> at all. 
And every month we had new classes. So it was actually 21 month. Every month you had, you had two classes a month. And at the end of the month, you were taking your exam. If you were passing the two exam, you would move on to the next month. Was a was actually a was a perfect system. I mean, it was a tough system, but it was a good system. You know, you get the class for a month, you take your exam, you move on. If you fail the exam, you do it again. If you fail again, you're out. Uh, yep. I never failed a month, luckily. I mean, it was it was so tough. You don't want to do one more month. If you can move on, you move <laughs> on. And I remember every time we were hitting. We're moving on to the next month. You you had to go and download the 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 calendar, and every time every time when the calendar was done downloading, you would click on the calendar app, and you'd be like praying for your dear life: is it going to be a full packed month or not? You know, and some <laughs> months were really packed, and some months were 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 more normal. Let's say, but the problem was twenty one months, so it was two years, and there's summer in between. So I didn't know really how I was gonna do for skiing, and you can't miss school. There is no way to miss school. You miss like two days of school, you fail the month immediately. Yeah. So I ask, and you can take somewhat of a break in between months. You can stop the degree for like a month. So my plan was actually to do a year then stop it during the summer, take like two or three months off during the summer and then do it again. And I started September and I remember like it was yesterday, I entered the first, and I mean, movie is, is a pretty nerdy environment, you know, very masculine, <laughs> right. not much girls, very nerdy, everyone stays inside and all that. And I remember the first days in class, I was sitting in the back of the class, all tan, just got out of uh, of like the Europeans or something like that, full out of the summer, sitting in this class with all those nerds. And I'm like, Jesus, I don't think I'm going to fit in, to be honest. Right. But obviously the classes, I liked it and all that. But the, the was a bit, yeah, different, um, a different vibe that I didn't really expect so much, you know. And... Mm -hmm. And I made friends, I got adapt and, and it was all fine. And then when it was time to actually stop and do the break, I actually decided to keep going. I'm like, I'm not going to skate this summer. I keep going because I'm in the routine. I got the friends, we got projects going on. I'll just keep going because I'm like, if I stop, I'm never going to go again. Because we're entering a yeah. bit hard classes and the schedules, you know, <clears throat> it's kind of a routine you got you to gotta fall into. And I was a bit afraid that if I would stop and go back to full on summer skiing, having fun, this, that, that I would really struggle getting back. So I'm like, now you finish it. And I, and I, I always liked it full sale, but I knew that it was very different from skiing. And now I actually got to adapt to, to that environment. And I was a bit afraid that if I go back into skiing, I, I would have not enjoyed it as much when I would have come back. And I had pretty good friends, so I, I, I kept going. And that's when I actually, as we're gonna we're gonna talk in the next episode. That's why I met John because we didn't start uh, school together with John, but John took a break to travel around the U.S. And when he came back from his break, he ended up in our class because all his class moved on in the meantime. So actually, it, it turned out really good that I didn't take a break because I met I met John. So, so yeah, it was a good. Um, no, that's cool. It was a good train. What was your favorite course at Full Sail? Is there a course that stands out as you were like stoked? The actually, well, funny enough, because we do webcasts now, the live TV production class was a, was a very cool class. I like that. 
was a was a one month where we learn actually how live TV does it. So which is exactly what we do now with webcast. So we learn, okay, you switch from one camera to another camera, the transition, all that. Uh, I enjoyed X class because it was towards the end of the of the program. So the atmosphere was a bit more relaxed. We had like three more months to go and, and we're so we were seeing the end of the tunnel, as we say. And right. so everyone was a bit more relaxed. The um, the schedule we could actually sleep during the night so it was just like normal nine to five classes and yeah the, the group of people we had that was a oh, that was a fun class that's a really nice fun class. yeah and let me like give this take this curiosity away from me is it because you said it's a fairly nerdy environment like was it a lot of like just watching movies teasing out movies to the minute detail was there part of that as well so as my surprise, we didn't watch so many movies. I thought we were going to watch more movies. So we had, obviously, we had a history of film, which that was a month where we watched movies. This, uh, this we watched a lot of movies that month. But it was more hands-on, do it, figure it out, and shoot. Basically, that's, that's, that's what, what was really all about. We'd, I wish we would have actually studied more the movies we had some of that but it was mostly was i don't know we did maybe 20 percent of watching movies and 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 learning what they did and 80 percent hands-on here's the camera figure out the menus here are the lens build your set shoot which at the end of the day was actually almost nicer maybe we might have learned a little more by staying a bit longer in the history of film but it was actually nicer because we were hands-on you know we were, we were being able to do our projects so yeah. so what's mostly shooting editing lighting learning about the gear and 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 actually the gear is a, is a is a fairly big aspect in in making movies is is learning the gear so mm -hmm. so we did quite a lot of that like learning how to it works or yeah, learning how to set up a, a 150 grand camera basically which <laughs> which might sound easy but it's not so easy no well i mean you even just the price itself might explain that it's not the most, uh, the easiest thing to maneuver, exactly. I would say. And actually also another, another thing that was, um, another class that was pretty cool. So the, also towards the end, we had a month, I believe, to do a final project. And John, was, John and I were in the same group and we shot that uh, movie on 35 millimeter film. And that was also really cool because we got to learn the whole process of loading film, working with film, and we used really the old ARRI cameras and, and all that. So that, that was, this we, we learned quite a lot and that was pretty, pretty, um, pretty eventful because you, do, you don't want to, you don't want to burn film for nothing, you know? So that was also something that, that got us on the A game. We were forced to be on the A game because every time we were rolling the camera, we spent like, we, we received a budget from the school for a final project and we spent like 50% of the budget on film. And right. we only had 50 to, 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 make, to make the movie. While all the others, they choose to shoot digital and they had all the budget to, to make the film look cool. But John was the DP and John was like, we shoot on film or final project. <laughs> it's not every day we're going to receive the money to shoot something in film. We're shooting film right now. So I respect that. And I happened to be the cameraman, so it was cool. Like, we, we got to set up the cameras and all that. That was cool. 
also john was dp on that project yeah, john was dp and i was cameraman yeah it's cool cool and yeah that's like it's funny how you say it about the film because that's what thomas told me in, in his interview as well he said that obviously when he started taking pictures it was film so you have that i mean apart from the technical differences that come with getting lighting and saturation but also just like the fact that you have a limited amount of film and you gotta do it then and there so you better be on spot ready to go with a good angle precise like i think there's a there's some kind of magic about that no i mean some film can i mean i'm not a huge expert in film but can work with you and against you because at the same time it sometimes it um so yeah, you got. It works for you because you, as you, as I say, you gotta you you're forced to go on the A game. So every time you're gonna shoot, you're gonna make sure everything is good. While sometimes with digital, you get a bit sloppy and you're like, ah, it'd be fine. I'll edit it, it post, and then you edit it, but it never really turns out as good as if you really would have put all the effort into it. And you walk out of it, okay, it was less work, but at the end of the day, you walk out of it with a worse shot than almost if it was film and you would have put all the effort into it so yeah, yeah film i mean I, I got to just shoot film at full sale so that's my my extent i had of film but yeah you, you just gotta make sure you do it right because you can i mean you can do it again but it's gonna be very costly let's put it this way it's gonna be time consuming because you gotta receive the film then load the film then send back the film then make sure it works so. so you guys never developed film you yes someone developing it for you yeah which that was also pretty cool um the lab that developed the film was somewhere about in between here and miami so in between orlando and miami and john managed to arrange that we went actually myself john and will um, which um, which was the director on, on that project. We went and got to see when they developed our film and we color graded the movie with them. So we actually got to go in the lab and they showed us everything and all that. That was um, not something arranged by the school, something that they arranged. And that was actually pretty cool. So we got to, we didn't develop ourselves, but we got to, to see the whole process and then go and color correct it. Color correction over film is also a bit different. So that was pretty nice. I was a bit of yeah. a behind the scene. That was that was cool to see. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's cool. And obviously, you brought your experience and your passion into the water ski world, right? With the webcasting. And I know we're gonna have in in the next episode, we're gonna delve deep into it. But what I want to ask you is, obviously, you're passionate about the sport, and as I said, to me, you're one of the biggest ambassadors of water skiing worldwide, like hands down. Um, what is, what do you think can help the sport grow? And I know it's such a loaded question and a hard question, but uh, from your perspective, um, whether it's competition or getting more skiers to ski, like what do you see right now as the most urgent thing to help the sport of water skiing grow? Well, as you say, it's a loaded question, but what I can s- what I can say like this, people have a tendency to like what they see. So not everyone might like soccer, but most of the people like soccer because at the end, that's all that plays on TV. They like what they see. 
So if everyone would see Wariski, they will probably like it. And on top of this, what we have working for us is that Wariski is a cool sport no matter what. You know what I mean? It's, it's cooler to, 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 I mean, it's, everything's debatable, but usually when people see Wariski, it's a pretty fun thing to watch. So how to grow the sport and I might sound a bit repetitive, but it's, it's content. I think Wariski likes a lot of content and that's what we try to do for the webcast is if people get to watch it, they love it. I mean, even people that are into the sport before before you were going to a pro events, for example, and you couldn't even watch it. So you kind of lose touch with the pro scene because it's like, well, I go, I check the scores. Oh, great. So-and-so ran 41 and that was it. Now you get to actually see it, see the replays, see the struggle, see what it takes to get there. Uh, you get to see it. I mean, live and you get to see the, the feelings and all that. So it attracts you more, you get more connected to it then you'll share with your friends. So the more content, I mean, every, like, look, if you go back to picture, who shoots right now in water ski? Almost no one. If we would have 20 photographers right now, it would push all the photography up. And then one photographer would have the connection to this guy. So then suddenly water ski picture would get onto that channel or onto that famous Instagram page or whatsoever. So can't, I mean, at the end of the day, content is the thing that will bring water ski up to the public eye. And if it's into the public eye, then TV wants it. And if TV has it, sponsors are going to be on it. So at the end of the day, I don't think it's lowering the price of the boat or changing the rules, or I think it's just pound water ski into people's face until we're out there that's i mean it, it might sound a little bit uh basic or, or or overwhelming but i think that's what it is i mean look at formula one formula one is a huge sport i i say this yeah. because i i didn't care about formula one i'm like oh it's cool formula one it's people driving cars on circuit and must be fun but anyway they're not passing and it's all political stuff and then i watched the netflix documentary i don't know if you got to watch drive to survive on netflix one day i yep. hear someone tells me drive to survive it's cool i watch that i am hooked i watch everything <laughs> i follow every drivers this and that if you would have, i always say if you would have the drive to survive in water ski there you go suddenly you're attracting a lot of people if suddenly there is a drive to survive in of water ski onto netflix that brings a hundred thousand people passionate that's going to come and follow all the best skiers in the world and, and be attracted. We, we need more content and we need better content. Yeah. And everyone complains about the distribution. Yeah. Obviously if we, if we do the drive to survive of water ski, we wouldn't be on Netflix immediately, but if the content is high quality and is well-made people will distribute it right now. They don't because what we have is shit. Yeah. If we if we do good stuff, good documentary, good videos, and we slowly bring all this up, then eventually bigger companies might be somewhat attracted. You know what I mean? And absolutely. So yeah, no, I think I think it, your your position is way less basic than what you say. Uh, I mean, I know that a lot of us have been talking about the importance of content. That's why we're doing this interview. That's why you're shooting webcast. That's why Marcus does Flowpoint. You know, like we all recognize that um, that necessity. But to me, it's interesting how you said that 
the pricing will not make a change. Uh, maybe, huh? I mean, obviously, the, 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 if, if a boat would cost $20,000, more people will, will, will buy it and probably uh, more people will ski. But at the same time, if we go back, I think there's plenty enough skiers. And there's, I, I believe, huh? maybe I'm wrong, but I, there, there, there's, there's way more skiers. There's actually, I'm always surprised by the amount of people that ski in the world. Like today yeah. in the world, there's probably more than a thousand sets than have been made. I and mean, it's it, all the US, the amount of skiers they have and all the South America. And I'm always impressed that, yeah, a lot of people ski actually for, I mean, since I'm small, I hear it's a small sport and it's a small sport the 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 tournament scene is a small sport but as a sport there's quite a lot of people that formula one i mean it there's millions and millions of people that watch for 20 drivers at the end of the day there's 20 drivers and the sport costs millions and millions of, of of dollars the sport is unaccessible people cannot access formula one like that com compared to soccer water ski is is more accessible and we're, we're, we're not watched as much as Formula One. Formula One is just doing a very good job at having a lot of content and at connecting the audience so people follow. So that's why I say I don't think it's pricing because I think we got plenty enough skiing, we got plenty enough pros, we got plenty enough tournaments. Uh, we're, we're somewhat lucky that obviously it's a very, very expensive sport, but we're not out of reach for sponsors, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. You want to put a, I mean, I don't know the pricing, but you want to put a, a Grand Prix in Formula One together, it's going to cost you a little more than, than a pro event, if that makes sense. So I just I mean, think of it's, course, it's, of it, course. It, it's, it's just a question of, of, of doing a better job in marketing, which water ski has been neglecting since, since the downfall of the sport. They all think it's more now a rule-based sport than really a show-based sport. And uh, I'm not saying we, sh we shouldn't keep it that way. We should totally keep it that way. Rules are here for a reason. And, and, and I don't think we need to change the rules of water ski to make it interesting. I just need, I just think that we have plenty enough rules. There's plenty enough, yes, yeah, structure. All the officials is good. All the rule book is good. Everyone knows the routine. It's just now a bit shifting all the effort from dialing in every single rule and, and all that to actually put into marketing. I mean, if you look at, at the, because our governing bodies, IWWF, if you look at like the tournament council, which is basically the whole technical part, there's plenty enough people there and the rules, they were already got a rule book tick like that, but then the marketing, there is no one. Maybe take those 20 people, shift them to marketing and leave two people for the rule book. Whenever someone complains about something, just scratch it out and rewrite it. And then that's it. You know what I mean? I think yeah. it's more. Yeah, probably a, a bad allocation of, uh, of resources in the, in the World Federation. Um, Which is not easy to do. I'm not saying that, that uh, taking a million picture of Wariski is going to do it, but it definitely is going to help. If you do high yeah, quality no, sure. content over and over and over, but the problem it takes, it takes a lot of time and takes a lot of people, you know, you can only do so much. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I think also, do you think it's the job of the federation to promote the sport? Yeah. I mean, it's the job of everyone. 
it's the job of the skiers, it's the job of the federation, it's the job of the international federation. I mean, at, right now, we all at a low level. Uh, we, uh, what I'm saying, we all, we're all small, we're all unknown. Once the sport rises and, 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 and gets more out there and, and there is more, more fans into the sport and all that, then, okay, you can say federation takes care of marketing and you take care of this. Now it's a bit, we all in that basket and we all got to try our best to, to, to bring it up. And then, yeah, when, yeah. when you reach uh, to a certain level, uh, you got federation that only takes care of marketing and then Lewis Hamilton can go and do whatever he wants and no one cares because Formula One's not gonna, it's not gonna go anywhere. No, but I bring that up because, I mean, first of all, I love your response to this, but like I bring it up because in a lot of sports, the federation there's like a federation that does the rules and there's an association slash federation that puts the money promotes and and etc cetera, etc cetera. you see what i mean so like um i was talking to freddie winter about it actually how the formula one there's the formula one federation which is rules regulation safety etc and then there's the formula one i don't know what it's called yeah, that really somewhat, yeah promotes the tour that promotes the tours uh gets the money in from marketing but i like how you said we're at such a it's sad to say but we're such at a low level that everyone has to do their part exactly i think there is enough people in the federation and obviously there, there's not hundreds of people there's maybe there's 20 people on paper and really guys working there's maybe five but yes, eventually when we get bigger, obviously the best is you have one uh, group that just does the rule and one group that does the marketing. But up at the point where we are right now, creating another group is going to be even more of a forgazzy and then everyone's going to be sloppy and everyone's going to be lazy. Now it's more of whether you're an athlete, a driver, a federation member, everyone should feel the same responsibility to bring this up and then once we're somewhat at a higher level then yeah eventually skiers focus on skiing and driver focus on driving uh iww president focus on political stuff and and tc focus on rules and then you would have your marketing uh, uh group as of now uh, it's small there's no one everyone needs to do the yeah. marketing yeah, we all have to do our part. And I think this connects back very well to what you said about content. If you are right, and I believe you are, that there are more skiers that we all know about, but there's the, there's the disconnect between the competitive side and the public potential, like the potential public, right? So I can see how creating content my way, I mean, is the way to, re to bridge that gap. I mean, that, there's no other way to say it. I mean, um, I know we, we're going to get there with, uh, later on with, with the webcast, but I, I mean, I, I, I am convinced and, and, um, and that's why we all work so hard is that I believe the webcast is the way. Because at the end, yeah. a webcast is a, is, a, is a TV for the sports that are too small. If webcast gets good, if, if, if the quality gets to the standard of the TV, if I know it's a, it's a, it's a long time plan and, and that's why... But if, if, if everything we have is set up, then we can go and, and eventually show it. I mean, now today, let's say by, by the best of luck, we have a connection to ESPN and they 
come to 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 anyone in the water ski and they're like oh we have a 10 minute window one day we want to show something about water ski i don't know what to give them personally everything everything we have it's it needs to be shot properly it needs to be presented properly for the people to jump and say boom and that 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 connection is going to be oh what they produce is actually really good people liked it and then suddenly you get a 20 minute time frame and then suddenly it comes every week and then that's what i'm saying it, it it's not just content it's quality content and so eventually if one day we have the opportunity to present it to, to bigger companies we have it right now we're not really at a point to go to sponsors and say we have this because we as of now we don't have much we got one dude organizing an event there that doesn't have a webcast and one dude organizing an event there that's got a great webcast and one dude doing this, you know what I mean? Once all this was somewhat connected and connected, doesn't need to be connected everything financially, but if we have good content at every event, at least at every event, we can watch them the same way and, and do well. And then somewhat you create a tour, at least for the viewers, you know what I mean? people don't yeah. know the behind the scene as long as they watch it and it looks the same that there you go there is your tour you know what i mean and, yeah. And, yeah. And, and then we have it there then eventually you can go and and, and push it to to bigger companies and so with that in mind uh, i'm assuming that you have positive thoughts about what greg has in place with the european water ski tour definitely 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 what greg tries to do to connect every every tournament together i mean as he as you said, we, we have already all the events. You're doing your event, and then Nico is doing his event, uh, Ricardo is doing his event. So we have already all the events. We have great characters in the sport, great performance. I mean, it's we have great ego in the sport, which which is very actually attractive to the audience. You know what I mean? Of if course. we can somewhat try to to show it, produce it, and, and and distribute it there there you go but it's easier said than done of course of course well you're certainly putting the effort to you john and 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 tony your guys are putting the effort towards that that's goal. what we we, uh, we we we're doing a little bit with um what uh, i mean we just did one but also with the the story of a champion video we made with nate is also a bit more something that's a bit more appealing to the audience you know there is show a little bit also the behind the scene of of top athletes that we have in the sport and and that eventually they they can they can connect to 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 the skiers a bit better we're going to try to do an episode this year on kruger also on freddy kruger to try to to show the behind the scene and see how they got there and all that so so then you connect to the person a little more and and when you'll see freddy jumping at the world next year you'll be like oh i watched his video he's born there and this and that and that's how you 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 get fans i mean when they know about you yeah because every water yeah, skier no, is sure. cool i mean deep down and we all got they're cool in a good way or in a bad way but they all got pretty interesting story and and especially t top athletes they, they they've been through a lot and and so the more we show the 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 the, the better it is i believe yeah, no, and that's, uh, look, that's exactly how my podcast evolved, right? Like at first I had all these ideas about creating content and then I realized that if I just talk to the damn people, the content would arise, you know, like now I'm at a position where I'm going once a week. I might have to go twice a week uh, if I keep amassing this much content, you know, because eventually what I notice is that skiers connect to 
stories of skiers, right? And also skiers that I interview or any guests that I've had so far, a lot of them has, have been telling me how nice it was to have an outlet to say their story. Because if you don't have the the presence on the media, then you don't also have that that strange, you know, possibility to talk about yourself, which sometimes is a bit weird, you know. But it's not weird for Lewis Hamilton or LeBron James because that's their daily life. No, no, definitely. Right? Definitely. Um, all right. Um, there was another thing I wanted to tell you or ask you, but now it's escaping me. Um, Ah, uh, yeah, it was something about webcast, but we'll get there when we get there. Um, listen, let's take a break because we're going to record two episodes back to back here. <laughs> so let's take a little lunch break. And uh, when you come back, you're going to be joined by Tony Lightfoot and John Walden. And we'll talk deep into webcast. Perfect. Thank you, Matteo. Oh, my pleasure, buddy. Enjoy your lunch. Oh, and you. Thank you. Thank you.